This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Now we're all good. So today we're going to Bezat Hashem speak about. Today we're learning Leiluni Shmat Avram Ben Chaim Yehuda and Yecheskel Ben Avraham. So one of the most important, or no, maybe let me rephrase that. The most important decision that you will ever make in your life is going to be if you're going to be religious or not. Uh, depending on your level of religiosity, of how from and how religious you'll be, that 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 is on one of the top lists of the most important decisions you ever make in your life. Possibly the second will be who you will marry. And I was thinking what would go third. And I was thinking if anything would go between this for the third. And I don't know, maybe there is. Uh, this is my own you know list, except for the first one. That's uh, that, That's not mine. But the... I would probably say the third one is probably your career choice of what you decide to do in your life. If you think about it, when a person's working, the majority of the waking hours that they are up and they're productive and they're doing something is usually in their job. So that's a huge, uh, you know, like a huge decision that you should make. But there's something very different between the religious level that you will be, between the person that you will marry and the career that you'll go into. And the difference is the first two affects everything. Who you will marry and how, what is your level of your, uh, uh, that you're religious is going to affect everything. It's going to affect how you raise your kids. It's going to affect if you can have kids. It's going to affect your outlook in life. It's going to affect your priorities in life. I mean, the list goes on and on. And it affects everything in life. So the first two affect everything. The career, it affects, but not as much. But even more so, the first two is very hard to change. If somebody was born non-religious and they got married and they started raising a family non-religious, of course anything is possible, but it's a difficult it's a difficult move to go and just make everybody religious now. If you married somebody and it turned out, and we'll soon speak about this, to be whatever what you think is a mistake, that is a hard thing to fix. But a career, on the other hand, what you decide to do, that's probably the easiest thing of all of them to be able to fix it. But the question is, you know, is it something that you should? And in order to explain this question, we have to go back to what we spoke about last week. And we spoke about last week regarding the idea of Hashem closing doors. So you have to think about it like this, that you try to do something and it's not successful. Then you try to do something else and it's also not successful. And then you do a third thing, a fourth thing, and for some reason it's not successful, not successful, not successful. Until finally, you, you get something and you realize, wow, it was so successful and all of my failures actually helped me because if I wouldn't have failed in the previous failure in, you know, endeavor, then I would have ended up, you know, pursuing that. But because I failed in, failed in the four previous things, now I found, now I finally ended up to my, you know, my golden door, my door, my, my place where I really need to be. This could be in anything. It could be in business. You try one business, fails. One other business. And then finally you hit it and it was like extremely successful. It could also be in dating. You date, you date, you date, you date, you date. Now, and all of a sudden you find the perfect person and all of a sudden everything is amazing. So this, in hindsight, you know how we say hindsight is twenty twenty. This is great and it works out. And sometimes it works out beautifully. I remember the story that I said over before years ago where you had a girl that was dating a guy that was perfect. Everything was amazing. Everything was unbelievable. And she thought she was getting engaged. And she thought that's it. It was the end. And then at the end, like right when she thought it was supposed to happen, the guy broke it off. Before they engaged, when she thought she was, everything broken off. And she's like, what are you doing? Hashem, what are you doing to me? Like after everything that I've been through, after finally I found the normal guy, what are you doing? And she, she felt very hurt. She felt very bad about her situation. Fast forward two, three years later, she ends up finding another guy. She ends up getting married to that other guy. And it turns out, well, everything works out well. But the bigger picture was when she realized, when she found out that the guy that she almost married ended up marrying somebody else, but that guy had some serious issues, some anger and gambling issues, like major issues, and he ended up getting divorced. And all of a sudden, in hindsight, now the girl is like, wow, Hashem saved me twofold. Number one, I got a better guy. Number two... I was saved from a disaster. So in hindsight, sometimes it's, it's, it's amazing. Everything works out perfectly. Everything works out amazing. And it works out great. But what happens, what we spoke about last week, if it doesn't work that way? What happens if you get into a, uh, you know, a marriage and the marriage is not great? And the marriage is like pretty bad. And it's like, you know what? 
And you start thinking about, you know what, I dated other people. If only I would have married that person, it would have been much better. And then you find out that other person that you dated, oh, he is the best husband in the world. How do you find it out? Of course, because you are on Instagram troll and you know everything about everything in their life and you know everything about the Facebook and the whatever it is, everything in between all the other social media. You know everything. And like, this guy is perfect. To put matters on top of matters, this guy ended up becoming a multi-billionaire and the president of the United States of America and of Israel and of the Rosh Hashiva. And he's like the best of everything. He'd be like, wait a minute, what happened over here? Like, I had that. And I lost it all. So sometimes you feel like, okay, sometimes it's nice. Hindsight 2020, great, everything great. I married the right guy. The other guy was a loser. The other guy was going to you know, fall apart. I'm good. But what happens if the other guy was not the loser? What happens if you married the loser? You never married the loser. But what happens if you think that way? What is your thought process? Now, the, thought, the correct thought process should be, and again, obviously speak to a rabbi in whatever situation, but, but in general, the thought process is that I married who I was supposed to marry. And I married who I needed to marry. And I married who I was intended to marry. This was the one who was for me. This was the Bashar. This was the one who was for me. And now I have to do everything that I can to be able to go and make it work. That is your mindset and that should be the correct mindset. Not that, oh, I messed up. I should have married. No, no, no. Who you married, that's who you're supposed to marry. Now with that thought process, when we go into career paths or career choice, is that the same thing? Is it if you fold, if you go down a certain path, Do you all of a sudden start thinking, well, wait a minute, Hashem sent me down this path, which is true. Hashem, you know, put me in this career choice, and maybe I should just stick it out. Okay, I'm getting abused, maybe I'm working too much, maybe it's, you know, maybe it's not a good environment, there's a lot of things, but Hashem put me over here, so maybe I should stay in the same mindset as, as you know, in the marriage. So, <clears throat> the idea behind this is something that is... Not something that I could give a clear-cut answer to everybody because every situation is different. But we're going to try to build a little bit of guidelines, a little bit of guidance to how to go about doing it. And that is a, that if, let's say, you're in a situation, and maybe you should look for a different career. Maybe you should look for a different path. Again, this is what you're spending most of your waking hours, unless you're sitting and learning to all day, which, bless you, ugly die. But if you're not, and you're in the work field, so you have these questions, these thoughts come up. And I'll tell you my philosophy before we go on to what I would like to go and explain, my philosophy has been, and this has been my philosophy for, for many, many years, and that is, and this is a philosophy that I try to stick by, both in the spiritual sense and the physical sense. And the philosophy is, is that we always have to capitalize on opportunities. If we have an opportunity, we have to capitalize on it. And if we don't, we'll regret it, we'll mess it up, and, and we need to. We need to capitalize it. And it goes and everything. It goes for work, it goes for business, it goes for uh, um, you know, spiritual growth. Like, I remember, like, you know, Baruch Hashem, I was at Zoha to be able to, uh, you know, I had you know, two very famous Rosh Hashivas. When I was in Mary Yeshiva, I learned under Reb Shmuel Birnbaum. And when I was in um, Torah R, I learned under Reb Chaim, uh, Reb Chaim Pinchas Scheinberg. Both, you know, G'daylin. And now, you know, unfortunately, they're no longer with us. And I'm always... You know, like, when I look back and I'm like, you know, had I known, had I, had I realized the opportunities, I would have capitalized so much. I probably would have bugged both of that. I probably would have done so much more, you know, than, you know, like, even when I was sitting and, and let's say, Chaim Pinchashapa was giving his Mishnah Burashir or whatever it was, I would have asked so many more questions if I would have just realized, what, if I would have capitalized on all opportunities that I had. And it works also in business. Sometimes there's investment opportunities or business opportunities or career choices that come across our path and we have to make a choice. And sometimes that choice is pushed to one way because of laziness or because of something else and not because of the correct things. And we have to realize we have to really capitalize on our opportunities. But that being said, let's keep that in mind in the back of your head, but now let's focus on the more important aspect, which I would like to uh, share with you with the Gemara. There's a Gemara in Kedushan, page 82a, that says, Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Meir says, A person should always go and teach their son a career path, a, a, uh, a, a job that is clean and easy. Nikia Vikala. And the Gemara goes on and says that there's no trade that does not include both poverty and wealth. You can become rich, says the Gemara, from any profession. 
Poverty is not a particular trait, and not, a wealth is also not from a t- particular trait. Rather, what, rather, it's from the merit, and it's all from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, it's all from the one above. That's what it ultimately depends on. So let's try to go and explain. This is what the Gemara says. Let's try to explain it. So the Gemara goes and says that, it's, that you should teach your, your child a profession that's Nikiah Bikala, clean and simple, clean and easy. What does that mean? So number one, clean is physically clean. Meaning that as an example, there used to be a profession, I'm sure there still is, but now mostly it's taken over by machinery, and that is tannery. What's tannery? Tannery is where you take skin of animals and you process them. It's a very smelly job, it's a very dirty job. If you could just, I know it's a girl's class, I probably shouldn't do this, but I'm probably going to do this. But imagine you take, imagine what that process is. So you have a carcass, an animal in front of you, and you have to remove the skin. Now, if I, it was a man's class, I would go into very graphic detail on how to do that. And the guys would be like, wow, that's amazing. But if I would do that in this class, I have a feeling that most of the screen is going to disappear and everyone's going to go barf and probably not come back after that. So I'm going to leave it to your imagination. But it wasn't a very, you know, I don't want to say dignified, but it was a very smelly, dirty job, to say the least. Whoever took, you know, any biology in any, uh, um, you know, college and they had to dissect any animal can just basically understand, you know, you know that, that concept. I remember I had a guy that told me once he was in college and there was, um, there was a guy that were taking biology and they were dissecting a cat, if I'm not mistaken. It was either a cat or a pet. I'm pretty sure it was a cat. And... One of the guys, like afterwards, at the end, the guy, one of the guys in the back, took the skin off the cat. Like, let me just explain this. That wasn't a requirement in the class. The class wasn't like, okay, guys, let's see how good you are in scalping skin off this, you know, fur. No, no, no. It was like, you know, figure out where the heart is, tell me where the kidneys are, the digestive system, or something along those lines. But there's one guy in the back that literally skinned the cat. And when the guy told me this, I was like... That's like, that's like this serial killer alert. You know, like that's something like, okay, wait a minute. There is something going on over here. Like when you're all of a sudden, you know, like I understand getting a little investigative, but when you're doing a beautiful job skinning an animal when it wasn't necessary, ah, that's where you should start, you know, a little bit of introspection, maybe a little bit of his to just go into the forest without any weapons and maybe like contemplate on your life and the importance of, you know, what you should do. Uh, you know, the last thing you want is some guy walking, you know, next to you and be like, wow, uh, you see that cat over there? Yeah, yeah, that's some good skin. I can make a good hat out of that. Yeah, that's somebody who you would probably prefer <clears throat> to not be alone with. Okay, anyways, so now, going back to the idea of a profession that's clean, so tannery, for example, is a profession that's not so clean. You're processing skins, you're, you're skinning an animal. But not only in the physical sense the Gemara is referring to, but also in the spiritual sense. The spiritual sense is, for example, you should have a clean environment. You shouldn't have a place, you shouldn't work a place where there's pretzels, where there's, uh, you know, immodesty, inappropriate dress, vulgar language. All these things affect a person. They affect your, your environment. Um, and, and it becomes, English and center. It could affect you very, very much. And you have to take that into consideration of what you're doing. And some people are, it's very difficult for them to leave. And you really have to have, you really have to think about it. If it's affecting you, then it may be appropriate for you to leave. Of course, if the company is involved in, in dishonesty or anything else, that's also a very big problem. You know, there are businesses out there um, which I don't want to name per se, you know, like in, in the finance world where they charge exorbitant amounts of interest and they try to they don't trick the customers. They tell the customers it's just a hot one-time fee, blah, blah, blah. They, they circumvent it in so many ways, but they're really robbing the person blind, unfortunately. They're going and they're, they're charging exorbitant amounts of interest and they're switching it in certain ways and it really destroys and cripples people. So you have to be very careful from these type of things. Also in jobs where people don't know about the product. I mean, you know... Have you ever gone to a mechanic? I guess this is even more so. For, I, guess, I shouldn't say for all women, but for a majority of women. You ever gone to a mechanic and the mechanic goes and be like, hey, listen, um, your, your cylinder is running backwards. It really should go, be going sideways. Forwards is okay, but backwards is terrible. It's not good for gas mileage. You're like, oh, a cylinder? I didn't even know I had a cylinder in here. Like, what, what should I do? He said, the cylinder needs to go into the square and the square needs to go into the circle and the circle goes into the pistons and the pistons shoot out the fire and then you have rainbows that come out and that's how your car drives. Um, of course, there's a little leprechaun on the back that goes in 
and give some magical incantations, and then it goes up. Be like, wait, what? I'd be like, yeah, it's only two hundred fifty dollars to fix. You want me to fix it? I, I guess so. I, I, you know, I, you know, I didn't know. Then the mechanic goes and be like, listen, you should really have an engine over here. You're like, well, I don't have an engine. How did I get over here? <laughs> you have an engine, but you know, you have one engine. <laughs> if you, what is one engine? Not good for, not for, for gas mileage. You should have four engines, one for each tire. That's what's going to make the car go much better. Also, you have some mayonnaise under the boil cap. I don't know what's going on over there. You're like, wait a minute, mayonnaise? I'd be like, yeah, you know, some, t- have you ever eaten salad in the car? I'd be like, I guess I'm running to work and I get some salad. Well, what happens is the vents suck up all that, that fluid that from comes of the compression over there and then the pistons condense it and then they push it into the to, to the oil cap and then you have mayonnaise and you're like you're like what i like i don't know it's only 350 dollars and 54 cents if you want plus labor which is seven thousand dollars if you want i can fix it otherwise you might blow up and blow up the entire manhattan if you're driving past by i think it's appropriate for you to do also you have blaker fluid lighter fluid and headlight fluid that you need to fix be like lighter fluid what do i need lighter fluid here i'm not barbecuing all this. how do you think your lighter works so you go over the, have you ever gone through this thing and you have no idea what they're talking about i mean i've literally uh you know sat through i've been to the mechanic and the mechanic will go be like you see your rotors? And I'm like, I have no idea what rotors are. And he's pointing to something on the wheel. And I'm like, yeah, rotors, right. Yeah, I, I follow you. Yeah, rotors. He's like, yeah, they're supposed to be parallel, not perpendicular. They have to be over here. Otherwise, they're shifting, and that's why it's going to break. I'd be like, I don't know what this guy is talking about. I have no idea. The pads are supposed to be here. All your tires are on backwards. They have to be flipped around and turned upside down and go over here. And they're going on and on. And if you don't know anything about the situation, you'll be like, okay, wait a minute. I, you know, like, they could charge you anything. And unfortunately, it's known. It's known, unfortunately. You go to, to, to certain mechanics, and they, they go and they start uh, ripping you off because you have no idea what you're talking about. And this goes for everything. You know, it could be in construction. It could be anything. Have you ever gotten this wonderful, uh, blissful, uh, best part of the day phone call where you get, you know, this beautiful, amazing, uh, you know, unbelievable phone call for, you know, to get your car's extended warranty? Is it, is it only me? Have anybody else any got in that? About seven or 8,000 times an hour, right? So you have this guy that calls you up, you know, Kumar is sitting over there and he wants to send you extended warranty for a car that you had 7,000 years ago in a previous life. And you'd be like, wait a minute, you know why? Maybe you're going to need to change the transmission and the four tires and the oil and the mayonnaise. You can't forget about the mayonnaise. We'll take care of the mayonnaise for you and we'll throw some salad in there and you'll have a whole lunch. You know, like maybe you should come with us for only five ninety nine dollars for a month. And you're going, go, you know, like, by the way, I got to tell you, I don't know why I'm going on such a tangent, but I got to tell you, you want to know the best time to be able to work on your midot? The best time. The best time is when you have Mr. Patel calling you from India to ask you about your extended car warranty, and if you're happy with it, and maybe you want to switch. And instead of going and saying a few choice words and saying, you know, <clears throat> blessing him with him and his mother, you should go and say, you know what? You could work on it for a second, be like, okay, wait a minute. You know, like, can you please, uh, you know, maybe remove me from your list? You know, I, I'm not really interested in it. You know, there's, there's a moment where you're like, the seventh or eighth, you know, time, you might, you know, you might want to get a little bit upset, but you realize it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity where you could stop for a second and you could utilize that to grow. Maybe ask Mr. Patel how his day is doing. You know, you're upset. You imagine how much, you know what that guy goes through. He has to call me Every single day, you know, like, or, you know, he calls so many people every single day. What do you think is the percentage of people that he actually gets to sign on to his extended car warranty? Who? Who's signing up already on the phone for that? You know, like, even though some of them may be scam artists and they want your social security number and all that, you know, and I'm not giving them any credit to them, but... They, you know, they're sitting on their work and every time getting shot down one after one after one after another. Maybe next time you say that, say, listen, first of all, how's your day? And then they're going to be very confused. And then you could tell them, please remove me from your list. Just utilize those moments to maybe grow on your midot. Now, I'm not taking keeping them on for the next hour to tell them about your problems and utilize this time for, for, you know, for your free therapy. But during these stressful, annoying uh, you know, moments, you could utilize it to grow with your midot. But in any case, going back to our situation before we went way off to the left field, is that there are so many business opportunities that are maybe a little bit sketchy. Or maybe you could act in a little bit sketchy. Yeah, sell them an extended warranty. They don't know what it is, but it's fine. Let's go to that. There's so many things that come out, but maybe you should go. And if you realize if it's not the kosher way, you should stay away from that. Maybe you should stay away from the business. Maybe you should stay away from the philosophy, whatever it is. But you have to go and stop for a second. If this is not correct, this is not the way that I need to go and I need to handle my business. But what is the problem? Problem is people feel pressured. They need to make money. I got bills. I remember speaking to boys, single guys. 
18, 19 years old. They're like, Rabbi, I got bills. I'm like, what? You live with your parents. What bills do you have? Oh, I got my cell phone, seven eleven Slurpee. You know, I got like bills. Be like, you, you need like $6 a week to survive, you know, because you have everything else and that's a luxury. Like, what do you need bills for? Like, go sit and learn. Go, go to the yeshiva. What are you sitting over here and trying to work and, you know, selling me car insurance or whatever it is? Go do something else with your life. Like, for a little bit, you don't, you don't have the bills. But people feel pressured. And what happens when people feel pressured? They want to make money and they do things that maybe is not so kosher, not so straight, not so correct. There was once a man that was traveling through the desert and he was very, very thirsty. And he felt he was dehydrated, he was going to pass out. Until finally he came across a pit with salty water. And he didn't want to pass over it, so he quickly went and he drank and he drank and he drank up this, this dirty salty water. He felt a little bit rejuvenated, felt sick to his stomach, but a little bit rejuvenated. He continues walking. And about three, four hundred feet later, he sees a flowing river with clear, sweet, pure water. How disappointed is he? That he filled up on this, on the, uh, on this disgusting salty water when he had this pure running, clear spring water. He was in Poland and Poland spring was right there. Even though that's not where it's from, that's a joke. But he saw there was a beautiful spring, a clear spring that he could have drank the most delicious water. But yet he didn't go and he did it because he went and he took the first thing that came on him. This is how we have to feel that if sometimes there's opportunity that comes to us. And even though we have to capitalize, and no, we don't have to. We should capitalize on every opportunity. But sometimes the opportunities are not so kosher. Sometimes the opportunities are not so great. Sometimes the opportunity is not the right opportunity that you should do. And that you have to have a munab and wait for a sweeter option. Wait for a better option. Wait for a more kosher option. However, there's a flip side of that. And the flip side is, is that you have people that have good opportunities that come in their way. Whether it's shiduchim, whether it's panasa, whether it's shishifat, whatever it is, anything. And they give it up. Why? Uh, just not, not ready, not good, not good enough. I could do better. I, well, like maybe sometimes tomorrow, yesterday, I have a phone call from my warranty guy. Hi, Kumar, how are you? We have all our excuses in the book. We have everything that, we're go- with, that, that we need. But sometimes there is a fine line that we have to balance. And the balance is, and this is the, the secret of life, the balance. Everything in life is a balance. And the balance is, you have to think about it. You know, like, when am I going to go for it and when am I not going to go for it? What is the right choice for me to do? Chazal tell us that there are certain, at least in the, in the times of the Mishnah, there are certain professions that are good to be avoided. For example, shopkeeper, a donkey driver, or a shepherd. The reason for that is that these particular professions, there is an easy opportunity to cheat. Rabbi Huda goes and says that donkey drivers are the mostly wicked. Camel drivers are mostly good, and sailors are mostly pious. Like, wait, why is that? Donkey drivers are mostly wicked. Camel drivers are mostly good, and sailors are mostly pious. You realize it goes from lower to from donkey, a little bit higher is to the camel drivers, and then to the sailors. And the answer is, so first of all, donkey drivers, they easily and they usually overcharge. So they're considered mostly wicked. Camel drivers, they spend a lot of time in the desert. And in a place in the desert, survival is not easy. And what happens if your survival is not easy? What happens if you're in a situation that is tricky, that is difficult for you? So you have to go and you have to uh, you know, figure something out and usually that ends up with a little bit of prayer. Have you ever been to the desert in the dark? I mean, like at nighttime, it's, it's not dark. It's pitch black. It's cold. You hear a noise and all of a sudden you, you're, you don't expect anything. Because if you're in the forest and you hear a noise, okay, fine, there's animals. In the desert, there's not that many. There are animals, but there's not that many. I remember one time, I guess you could call it desert. At one time I camped out with me and my friend outside of Masada. And I, uh, um, we, we slept there overnight, and there is a campground over there. But for whatever reason, probably because it was the middle of the winter, we were the only fools that decided to camp then because nobody else was there. It was just us in a tent. Um, the whole situation was so... A bunch of 18-year-olds or 19-year-olds going to figure out a camp in the tent. Uh, you know, we brought tuna cans to eat, but we didn't bring a can opener. So, you know, like we had all this... Food sitting right in front of us. You know, don't ask. We try to grill cheese by uh, putting cheese on fire. It was like crazy, it was stupidest things. But anyway, so we're sitting over there, and I I walked out of the tent, and it was pitch black. And I was like, first I was like, oh, wow, that's so cool. But then all of a sudden I hear a noise, 
And I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Like, that should not be happening. I'm not moving. And there's a noise over here. And there's, like, nobody else. It was me and my friend. My friend was in the tent. So, I, thankfully, I had a, a flashlight over there. I shine a flashlight, and I turn around, and I see about in, like, maybe 15, 20 feet ahead of me, there's a fox with his head in the food, which we very smartly left out for the fox to eat. And I'm sitting over there in the middle of nowhere with a flashlight pointing at this fox and this fox is in the middle of eating and then it sees the light so it looks at me and I'm looking at it and it's looking at me and I'm like, what do I do right now? Like, I have never learned... Like, are foxes even dangerous? I don't know. Their tails are really long and really fluffy. Like, I don't know. But it just kind of looks a little bit like a wolf. Uh, you know, like the whole thing is going in my mind. Like, what am I supposed to do? So I slowly back out and the fox is just like... it's. It's like a zone in to me. It's like, no, you know, like you walk into a Kabbalist and the Kabbalist looks at you and then he sees your soul. This fox was looking into my soul. Like it was not, it was like the eye contact was probably the most disturbing part of it all. Like, and not only that, have you ever shined a light? Their, their eyes are like red. Or like it, it was, it was a very interesting situation. And I slowly backed away, went into the tent zipped up and stayed there for the, and like I probably didn't move for that it was the most uncomfortable sleep also but what it was like something that was you know beyond it but what was i doing at that time you know like ain't no nevada ain't no nevada ain't no nevada you know stay back ain't no nevada shilamala you know like and then this fox is looking at me so you get stuck in the desert you get stuck over there it could get a little scary especially when you come you know face to face with an animal that you don't know how to take care of and you don't know what to do and you don't even know a polar bear you're supposed to go up you're supposed to be like a baby you know you don't know what to you know you're supposed to scream you're supposed to you, I have no idea I didn't read the instruction manual for Masada to go on how to survive a fox attack you get a little bit scared so what happens you start davening so that's why the camel drivers are mostly in the desert. Mostly in the desert, survival is not easy. Besides the, 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 the foxes, you have the scorpions, you have the, the mountain lion. You have the, so many other animals over there that's very scary. So they're sitting over there and they're davening to Hashem so much of the time. So hence, what do we see over here? That the camel drivers, the Gemara goes and tells us, that are mostly good. But the Gemara goes on and says that sailors, sailors are mostly pious. It's a step even higher. Sailors is even more scarier. I, you know, like, again... I'm not talking about when you go on a cruise ship, which is basically a city on water. But if you go on, in the olden days on a ship, there is no way, even nowadays, there is a huge wave. There's no like, oh, <laughs> let me go around it. There's no, like if there's a wave that's coming to you, you're going up with the wave, and then you're going down with the wave. And that can be pretty scary. Even if it's just 20 feet, that's really scary. And there are waves that are much higher than that in certain storms. A storm comes, like how are you going to deal with that? You fall into the water, who knows what the shark-infested water is. And back then, people, they, they believed in mythical creatures. They saw, you know, there was dragons and who knows what under the water. They were very scared. So they were constantly scared. They were all alone in the, in the ocean. At least in the desert, you're on dry ground, dry ground. Over here, they're in the water. So what do they, a lot of times they go and they sit and they pray. So that's why sailors are even more on a higher level. On a, on, on a, they're considered mostly righteous. Why? Because they're sitting and they're praying all the time. So we see over here, there are certain professions that can cause you to be closer to Hashem. Now again, I'm not saying they should become a sailor or a camel driver or anything like that to do that. But we see over here that this has a strong effect on your spiritual well-being, on your spiritual level. There was once a controversial figure who was opposed by Rav Shach, Rav Chaim Kanievsky, and Rav Shmuel Orbach. And due to his, you know, his Ashkafa, there was a certain Avrech, there was a certain Kolol guy, that his wife got an opportunity to... Uh, to work in one of the schools that he was affiliated with. So he went to Reb Chaim Kanevsky to ask him if they could go take a job by this person's school because he, you know, he doesn't have the best hashkafa. So Reb Chaim Kanevsky heard the question and he said, no, she cannot work in the school no matter what. So the Avrech and the wife, they accepted the psak and they started searching for a job. But everywhere they searched, dead end. They couldn't find anything. A month before the school year started, the wife was ordered another job by a private school that was also affiliated with the individual, but not directly. So like kind of affiliated with this individual that was, you know, not the best apple in the tree, but not directly. So they went back to Reb Chaim Kanevsky and they consulted. So Reb Chaim Kanevsky goes and says, it's not prohibited, it's not a su, but from a Parnassa standpoint, you're not obligated to take this job as part of your Heshtadlut. You're not obligated. So, all right, he started thinking about it. He, said, he didn't give him a straight no. 
didn't give him straight yes. So this Arbeck, his friends, was telling him, you know what, you could really take it, you need the money, we can't be left without anything. He decided to decline the job. He says, Reb Chaim, you know, you're not, not messing with it. Reb Chaim Kanievsky, the Gadol Dar, said something, I'm taking that to the bank, even though it was kind of an aside thing, I'm not going to lose out from it. One week before school started, one week, they were left without a job, one week, and the wife got a frantic call from a local base Yaakov that they were desperately looking for her and they gave her everything that she wanted and more. And they accepted, and she accepted the job over here. Why? She didn't want to go and cut off on her priorities. Things that were important, things that were required, things that were maybe halakhically incorrect. She decided that she was going, and by the way, you know how difficult that is? You have a family, you have bills. Not 18-year-old bills. You have family, real bills, that you have to go and pay. And you say, no, I'm not going to take it because it's not right. That's a high level. But that's the correct level that we should all aspire to. That's something that you should be, that be like, wait a minute, if this is not kosher, this is not correct, then maybe we shouldn't take this. The Gemara Kedushin goes on and says that it should be Nikia Bikala, clean and simple. So uh, we said we said that we spoke about clean. Now what about Kala, the simple, the easy aspect? The easy aspect that Mepharsh will explain us that it's, your job shouldn't be on your mind all day. It should not be distract you from your spirituality. If you can't focus on spirituality, that's not good. Your mind should be preoccupied with the spirituality. You know, sometimes you have people that while they're sitting and they're working, they're fully focused on working. But while they're doing spiritual, while they're davening, while they're learning, while they're whatever it is that they're doing in the spiritual aspect, what are they thinking about nonstop? They're thinking about their business. They're, they're going davening and they're thinking about the business meeting, and then they're thinking about the future business meeting, and then they're thinking about the vacation. They're thinking about all these things. That's the, it should be the other way around. You should always be thinking about the spiritual side, not always about the financial side. So kala, simple. What is simple? Simple means that it doesn't preoccupy your whole entire day, or that's maybe something that you should take as a personal growth aspect, that it shouldn't preoccupy your, your entire day, and you should be able to focus on the spirituality when you do need to focus on the spirituality. The, the Mishnah goes, the Migmar goes and continues. What should one do afterwards? One should then daven to Hashem for support. After whatever profession they decide to get into, whatever job you decide to get into, you have to go and you have to daven. Why? Because every profession has rich and has poor. And there's one source only that is going to decide if you're going to be from the poor or from the rich. And that is HaKadosh Baruch Hu. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is going to be determined your, your assistance. There, you can have a surgeon who went to 12 years of school and then due to multiple lawsuits was laid off. Couldn't work in that. Ended up driving a cab. I don't know. Whatever. I'm, you know, doing something else. Flipping shish kebab. Whatever it was because they couldn't get to whatever it is because of the multiple losses. And then you have a taxi driver who started off as a cab driver but ended up saving enough and bought a medallion for a yellow cab. And then he bought... This is before Uber came out when it was worth something. And then he went and he bought more and then he started... And then he ended up having a fleet of taxis or a fleet... Whatever it is that he went. You have somebody on the highest end of the spectrum that ended up falling into the lowest end. And then you have someone from the more of the lower end that ended up going to the higher end. We have the moon on the Tachon that on Rosh Hashanah, Hashem decrees exactly what you're going to earn. And it's very interesting. You see people, and I've seen this, you know, where you have, let's say, for example, a bus driver that was making you know, money you know, driving a bus, and he ended up you know, saving a little bit of money, he ended up buying a bus. And then he bought another bus. And he started off as a bus driver, and now he has a whole fleet of buses. I'm talking about yellow school buses. This is a story in Brooklyn. Uh, you have, you know, that he became successful from that. There was a guy by the name of Ronald Reed. Ronald Reed was a janitor and a gas station attendant. And that's what it was like the whole time. It wasn't like he, you know, he was a gas station, and then he became CEO of Exxon, or whatever. You know, like, no, he was... He was a janitor and a gas station attendant. At his death, he, they found out that he was worth nearly $8 million. He invested in stocks over here and there. Nothing like crazy. But a Baruch could give wealth to whatever it is. You could be a janitor, you could be a gas station attendant, and you could be worth $8 million. You could be a doctor, and you could be in the hole for $8 million. You could be a lawyer, and you could owe $60 million for lawsuits, and who knows what that went against you. Hashem can make you rich despite what you have. Of course, we have to though, take this into consideration. And, you know, if you have a family of 12, you can be like, okay, let me take a newspaper route, and hopefully Hashem will save you. You know, you have to, you have to make reasonable, you know, obligations. There was once an Avrech, that, uh, a Kola guy, that uh, once managed to buy a small apartment, 
and um, their means were limited. His wife worked until noon when she had to pick up the kids, and he sat and he learned. But he was just like a serious learner. He wasn't like one of those like sat and learned, went to smoke, sat and learned a little bit, went to smoke, went to smoke, went to smoke, sat and learned, went to smoke. You know, had a coffee, went to smoke, sat and learned, went to smoke. Like now, he he was a person that learned, 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 and learned. No breaks. No went to the point is that he went in the morning. He didn't come home for lunch, and he didn't even come home from dinner. He came home at 10 o'clock at night. And his wife wanted to, wife wanted to go and sit and learn. Five days a week, that's what his, that was his schedule. He, they were able to buy an apartment. And for whatever reason, they neglected, they didn't realize that they had to pay a certain amount of taxes on their purchase. Some time went by, and interest compounded. And uh, they owed all of a sudden, the, you know, the, the IRS in Israel, or whatever that is, they, they reached out you know, to him that he owed a considerable sum of money. And at this point, they own, this is this story going many years ago, they owed 20,000 shekels. And they have to pay it in full. Otherwise, their home is going to be put up for sale to cover the debt. So, you know, the, the husband is thinking, he's like, what, 20,000 shekels? a lot of money. How am I going to make that? And it was a very short period of time. There was no way that he was going to make it. So, okay, maybe if I go and I start to, doing tutoring jobs, he says, there's no way I'm going to make 20,000 shekels, you know, during that time. They had no savings. You know, his wife worked, you know, until noontime and then she had to pick up the kids. There was no other option. So they, they, they were figuring out what they should, they should do and they were thinking about it. They, they, there, was no, there was no option. They couldn't work more unless he leaves learning and he goes to find a job. But even that, he's not going to make that amount of money in the time it's due. So the next day, he goes over to his wife and he shared with her an idea. He goes and he says that the Torah tells us that whoever takes upon himself the yoke of learning Torah, Hashem takes away the yoke of Parnassah. Hashem takes away, you, you increase your Torah, the, the mysterious nefesh, that, that part that you need to go work, that's going to be taken care of it. And he quoted the Chazal, the Gemara, that goes and says in Avodah Zarah, page 19b, anybody who toils in Torah will be successful in their property. So he goes over to his wife, and he says, listen, I come every night at 10. He's already a huge masbid. But he said, maybe I need to extend myself a little bit more. Maybe I should take upon myself to learn until 10.30. Instead of 10, I'll learn for 10.30. And that, hopefully, that merit will cause us to be able to fix whatever issue we're dealing with. So, she was willing. She was a righteous woman. She realized the importance of learning. And she said, fine, you have yourself a deal. So, the first night, he instead of coming home at 10 o'clock, he comes home at 10.30. The second night, he's sitting in the bed mitah. She's sitting and learning over there. It's 10.15, a time where he would normally be home. And all of a sudden, someone comes into the Beth Midash and starts looking around. And he sees this guy learning. He walks over to him and he says, you know, I've been looking at you for weeks now. For weeks I've been searching for you. He says, finally I found you. He says, a while ago you told me, we were talking, and you told me that uh, you know of a certain apartment that's, that's available. He says, you know, and I told you, I, you know, I'm in need of a large apartment. He's looking for eight bedrooms, which is something that's hard to find. Uh, so in America, especially also in Israel. So he says, you know, um, I, I've been looking. You said, you know something, can, do you have any, can you give me the information? So he said, yeah, sure, not a problem. You knew a certain person that was looking to rent, sell, or whatever, as a certain apartment, there's a large apartment. Takes down a pen and paper, gives him the information, hands it over to this guy. So the guy says, you know, like, I appreciate it, and, and I just want to let you know that if anything comes out from this, I will com- compensate you, just like I would have compensated a uh, real estate agent. So he says, okay, fine, I didn't think twice of it. He continues learning till 10.30, and that goes on for the next week. A week goes by, and this uh, guy comes into to the Beth Midash again. 10.15, he's looking at the guy, he finds him sitting and learning in the corner over there. He goes over to him, and he says, you know, I, you know, I, I want to thank you for everything you did. You know, we looked at the apartment, I called the guy, I looked at the apartment. He says, I liked it so much, I didn't want to rent it, I wanted to buy it. And we are, right now we're under contract to buy it. And the guy says, wow, Mazaltov, unbelievable, amazing, you know, I'm so happy for you. And the guy says, oh, but that's not what I came here for. I came here for, I, said, I told you, I'll give you, you know, if, if I would have had to gone through a real estate agent, I would have had to pay a fee. I want to pay you the fee now. And the guy takes out a checkbook and writes him out a check and says, this is, this is what it would have cost me if I would have gone with a real estate agent. And here, I want to give this to you. The guy is like so thankful. He's like thinking, what is he going to give me? 500 shekels. He takes a sh- the, the check. It's for exactly 20,000 shekels. Exactly the amount that he owned. Now, the story doesn't end over there. This Avrech goes over to Rabbi Yitzhak Zilberstein. He goes over to a big rabbi, and he says, is the money mine? Like, is the money rightfully mine? You know, there's so many lessons that we can learn from this, but like, if you just pause it for a second, you have a guy that's in desperate need for money or he's going to lose his house. And someone hands him a check, the golden ticket. He hands him a check that's going to solve all his problems. And instead of just like, 
taking the check, running to the bank, depositing it, and be like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. You know, you know how we make excuses in our heads. Everything is always okay. We have reasons to do everything. Yeah, no, it's fine. I need to go to the club to be of somebody, you know, uh, not physically, spiritually. I got to go and make sure the Heksha is very good at this bar. I'm going to say at Vartaira at this mixed co-ed event because, you know, it's important to go. And, you know, like, we, there's stuff that goes on to, you know, in people's minds. To the point is, is that I've even spoken to people that were dealers, not car dealers. I'm just going to let your imagination run you what type of dealers they were. And they somehow were doing chesed Hashem. No, they're anxious. Heroin is good for the, <clears throat> whatever. You know, like they're so tired that they need a cocaine to learn uh, the level of life. And, you know, sitting over there. You know, like people can convince themselves crazy things. Yet you see over here somebody that's sitting and learning, did something right. What does he do? And is it mine or not? Is it kosher? Do I? He goes and he runs over to Rabbi Yitzhak Zilberstein. Before he cashes the check, can I take the money? So Rabbi Yitzhak Zilberstein said, yeah, you could take the money, it's yours. And then he asked him another question. He says, you know, Rabbi, I took upon myself to learn an extra half hour. How long should I keep on this, uh, you know, this, this, uh, this extra learning? So the rabbi told him, he says, keep it on for, till the end, the end of this month, to the end of the, of the semester, in I guess the English term, you know, explanation of this month, till the end of the semester, and then uh, you could go back to your normal thing. But like, you look, when I read this story, I was like, oh, like there were so many, le- first of all, you could really break upon this story and learn so much. You have, a, you have somebody who's going through such a stressful situation, Generally, when people are going through stressful situations, the last thing they want to do, okay, let's, let's learn a little bit more. Have you ever been stressed and be like, hey, you know, you want to learn some Masila Sashara? You know, why don't we learn some Perky Alvis? And be like, what? No, I have an exam that I'm not ready for. I don't know. Like, I'm going to get, who knows what's going to be? Like, how do you even have, this is somebody who's sitting and learning was so composed that when he was about to lose his house, he was like, you know what we should do? Learn more. Like, that was, he was able, like, that's a huge lesson. Lesson number two that I, that I learned from this is the guy that gave him the 20,000 shekels. You have a guy that goes and finds a, an apartment from somebody else, from his friend. The first thing that he thinks about is, okay, I just saved myself 20,000 shekels. I don't have to pay the, the real estate agent. But here you have somebody be like, no, what's right is right. He deserves it. And he went and he gave him the money. Even though he didn't need to, he wasn't, gonna, he wasn't obligated to. The third lesson is like, when the guy received the money that he needed so desperately... He was able to be in such a composure, such a, such, a, such a mindset that he would be like, wait a minute, is this really mine or not? Is it really kosher or not? You know, I was reading this story like, Mika Amcha Yisrael. Where do you have this? You know, like, it's such an unbelievable level. But this is a level that doesn't come easily. This is a level after years and years of studying and learning and growing in the spiritual aspect, and the spiritual, you know, world. This person is sitting and learning to all day. He's sitting around a great environment. His wife is working till noon and then she's coming home and taking care of the kids. And what do they speak about when they finally... They're speaking... The, the whole life is Torah. So they think differently. But let's say you get into a work environment that they think differently, but not that way. The other way. That affects you. That changes who you are. That's something that you're not going to make these decisions over there because you're ingrained. We don't realize how much we get influenced. We get influenced so much. And we have to take this so much into consideration. The Chavetz Chaim, he owned the store. But when he worked in the store, the minute that he had enough money to eat for the day, he closed the store. Can you imagine that? You have, you have, you have a business and it's successful. But you're like, okay, now it's time for me to uh, go learn. I have enough money for the day. Let's close up shop. You look, you, what do we you have all the customers. Some people go out, they come, they come to the store early, and they leave late because maybe there's going to be another customer that's going to come by. Maybe they're going to have over there. They, got, they can't go. They got to miss Minyan. Why? Because maybe they're going to get another customer. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Here you have the Chavetz You know what a level of Chavetz Chaim is? The second they had enough money, close up shop, I'm going to learn. There was a Kolo in Lakewood that, it was a guy, I'm sorry, who learned in a kolal in Lakewood, and he was uh, looking for a job after he was spent a few, quite a few years learning. After he got married, and he decided now it's time for Parnassus. He decided he needed a job, so he goes and he starts uh, looking for a job. And he found that the Agudas Yisrael is giving a thirty-day course, and then if you take the course, you will probably get a job in uh, Chase Manhattan Bank. 
So he says, fine. He goes and he takes a job, he, t- he takes a course, and he gets instantly hired in, in Chase, like in Manhattan Bake, like in a Chase, the, you know, of, of Manhattan Bake division. And he was like, why was that so easy? Like, you know, like I'm pretty, I mean, he was sitting and learning for that, but I'm pretty sure it should be a little bit more difficult than that. So they explained to him that the president of the bank said that he would hire anybody who had a large number of years of postgraduate studies in a certain very elite school called Base Medrash Gavaya, BMG in Lakewood. If somebody would go and sit and learn in a certain colo in Lakewood for a certain amount of years on his resume, and he took a 30-day course, hired on the spot. So they were like, why? Why would, why would he take it? So what happened was, is that this president hired a person that spent many years in BMG, and then he took this course, and he was so impressed with his work, he was like, wow, this is unbelievable. And then he hired another person who took the course and spent many years learning in BMG, and again, he was extremely impressed. So he came to the conclusion that this yeshiva is like doing something good, and it's causing them to think whatever it was, and he, and he said that whoever, if you have this criteria, you get hired. He found out, he saw, he was smart, he looked into the statistics, and he saw that these yeshiva graduates performed better than the people that had masters and doctorates in computer science. And therefore, he came to the conclusion, anybody learning in BMG has, for a certain amount of years in postgraduate, should be hired on the spot after they take this course. And kakata. And this is not a, a, a long story, this is crazy. There was, there was another story where a person went and he took a computer course. He also sat and learned for, for quite some time. Uh, afterwards, he decided he needs to support his family. He took a computer course and he found a job in the local uh, Department of Health. In the computer IT department, whatever it was. And he started at the bottom. It was an entry level. And uh, um, what happened was is that one time he was sitting over there and uh, he overheard two people talking to a certain issue that came up. And they realized nobody could figure it out how to resolve this issue. So they went from like the lower person to the higher person to the higher person, you know, to, to finally the guy who was running the department and be like, how do we, you know, we can't fix this, this situation. And the guy running the department is looking at it and he's like, I don't know, you know, and this is where this Avrech, this cold guy overheard. He overheard the issue and he overheard it talking to the head of the department. So he goes over and he says, do you mind if I take a look at it? Within a short period of time, he troubleshooted it and he fixed it immediately. And the next time that you know, this issue came up, they went straight to this guy. Hey, by the way, you fixed the other thing. Can you fix this? And he started fixing one issue after another. Within six months, he started entry level. Within six months, and by the way, this is Department of Health, which is a city you know, job. This is not a, you know, within six months, he was the head of the computer department. The head of the entire department within six months. And it's like, you know, it's unbel- like you hear the stories again and again and again. And, you know, like, I believe it was uh, Rav Hashazal Grubazim. He said that, you know, you learn bi'ian, you learn in depth, it's going to develop your mind. But then he goes on, he says, if you want to work, learn first for 10 years, then you're going to be able to conquer the world. It, you're going to be able to conquer olam haba and olam hazet. Your mind is going to be sharp from learning, you're going to be able to go and conquer everything. But we see over here, where's the priorities? What should you focus on? But now we have to think about something that we kind of skipped over, and that is... Career path. So what, so what should you do? So the Chobos of Lavos goes and says in Shara B'Tachon that a person should choose a type of career that they're naturally inclined and interested in. And he gives a mashal from the animal kingdom. So you have different species of animal that eat and survive on different types of food. For example, there are certain animals that eat vegetations, plants. There are certain animals that eat insects. There are certain animals that eat other animals. And it's very interesting when you look at these animals... The animals that prey on other animals, they have the tools that they need for that. They have the sharp claws, they have the sharp teeth, and those that eat plants, they don't have those tools because they don't need it. You have, uh, um, you know, somebody, you look at the giraffe, they need to eat things for whatever height it is, they have, a, they have an extra long neck. You have, there's so many different things that come with whatever the need is of that animal. The Chobos of Abbas goes and explains that animals are not carnivorous because they have claws and sharp teeth. But rather, Hashem gave them sharp claws and sharp teeth because the nature is that they need to eat meat. So it works the other around. They got the tools that they need because that's the end goal that they need to reach to. And on the same being, that Hashem gives each and every single one of us a certain inclination, a certain desire for certain activities. And he equips this person with certain necessary tools to su- succeed in these activities. So what should you pursue? 
you should pursue the activities that interest you. Again, assuming that it's kosher. You can't say like, oh, you know, I love dealing, not cars. You know, I, it's so enjoyable to me. Like, no, I love running from the law. I know, you, that, I'm, so, I'm assuming that everything is kosher. That's what you should go. You should focus on something that you, that you, uh, that you enjoy. The, the Gemara goes and, and says that the, the example that I said, did you ever see a chayr or an oif, a beast or a fowl uh, that earned a trade? They don't work. You never see an animal, you never see a tiger as an accountant. You never see a, a bird that is a, uh, you know, I was going to say messenger, but like I think kind of in the old days it were. You never see a bird that, uh, I don't know, stomps on grapes to make wine. Like, they all survive. They all survive. They don't have no trouble. So why is it that they, which were created to serve humans, don't need to have this trade, but I do need to? So the answer is, because of the Avera that happened by Adam Mechava. But... Well, that's where the Gemara ends. But when we try to analyze this, why did the Gemara say specifically chaya and oif? Why specifically beast, like wild animals and fowl and birds? The Ian Yaakov goes and answers that what's the difference between a behemah and a chaya? A behemah is a more of a domesticated animal. The Ramban goes and says more like herbivores. They eat more plants. Chayas are more wild. And they are more carnivorous. They, more, they, they, they are meat-eating. What's the difference between that? Domesticated animals, animals that are, you know, uh, like more of the behema aspect, they what? They get their sustenance usually from their owners. You have the cows, the sheep, the goats. They get their, their food from their owners. While the chayas, the wild ones, where did they get their, where did they get? They're in the wilderness. They receive the, their, their, their food directly from Hashem. Hashem goes and, and, and provides for them. So the Kavachomer over here that's going on over here is like, look, the Gemara goes and specifically goes and says, Chaya and Oif, not Behema. Behema goes, you get it from your boss, the landlord. That over here, specifically Chaya and Oif, birds and these wild animals, because these, these animals survive directly from Hashem. So just like HaKadosh Baruch Hu could provide for these wild animals, so too HaKadosh Baruch Hu could provide for us for whatever profession we go and we decide. But then the question that comes up, ah, oh, but you see doctors, lawyers, they, are more, they seem to be more successful than somebody who's, uh, let's say, you know, not in that uh, level of, of profession. So the answer is that it works like the man. The man is, the more that you take, there's no difference of what you're going to be ab- able to actually utilize. Like, there was a certain level, a certain amount, measurement, that you were allowed to take for the, for the man. And if you took more, and if you took less, you, you weren't able to gain anything more. The same thing with panasa, that you could make more money, but you won't have access to that money more than Hashem will allow it. Meaning that you could gather as much as you want, but in the end, Hashem will determine how much you will be able to use and what you will be able to benefit from your actual salary. Somebody could go and make $10 million, $20 million, $30 million, but make four bad investments, and then they're down to $200,000 or $100,000 of what they would have originally made. And they hustled and they bustled and they did everything they could have done. They were like, look, but then they lost it all. Or... Let me give you even a more common one. They make $20 million, but it sits in their bank and they don't do anything with it. They don't enjoy it. They, I mean, they look at it and they enjoy it. You know, they see all that zeros. It looks nice. You know, but they don't, they don't end up doing anything with it. And for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, it's sitting over there. And then what happens? They die and it goes over to whatever their inheritance, whatever it went to. So there's so many ways that we can make more money. And you could make more money that it was intended, but you won't be able to utilize that money. You won't be able to benefit that money. And each prof- that's why each profession has people that make it big and have people that make it small. Because it doesn't matter then. At the end of the day, it matters what you was decreed on Rosh Hashanah that you will make. There was once a person that had a faucet leaking. So he called over a plumber. And the plumber, you know, within 10 minutes fixed it. The plumber says, okay, that will be $250. That says $250? He says, it, you know, I went last time to a specialist, a doctor who spent 12 years in medical school. And I spent, you know, five, you know 10 minutes also with him. He only charged me $150. You charged me more than a specialist doctor that spent 12 years in school. And the plumber looks at him and he says, yeah. He says, what do you think? He says, I was also a doctor. I was also a specialist. He says, I closed off my practice and I became a plumber because I make more money this way. You, know, you go and you, you, you start figuring out what's going to make me the most money. And I'll go to, it, it's not about, it's about what's going to be decreed from you. Speaking about doctors, the Gemara goes and says, The best doctors are to Gehenim. Now why does the Gemara go and use the word Taif? Why the best? Any doctor. No, or non-doctors. Like, why the best doctors? 
So when you think about it, be like, okay, well, should I not be a doctor? Should I go into the medical field? Not necessarily. In fact, the medical field is, very, you know, it's it's a very it's a very good profession to get into. It's a place of chesed that you have to care for other people. But what happens is, if you're the best of the best, if you're the doctor, you're the best doctor. So there's a little bit of arrogance, you know, there's a little bit of gaiva that comes in over there. So you think that you're perfect. You think that you're not going to make any mistake. So maybe you'll perform treatments that maybe are necessary. Maybe you can misdiagnose. Maybe you can give medications that are contraindicated for this patient and it could cause harm to the patient. And you don't feel you need to consult other doctors or other... You know, I have to say, so... I don't know. I'm not going to say that. Today I got my... I, I went to get fitted for a crown. I went to my dentist. To, I had a root canal and I had to get fitted. And I was very impressed with the dentist. And the dentist, he, he goes over to me and he says, you know, I, I, we did the procedure... But I was reviewing your, your charts and I was reviewing it with the other doctor, my colleague, and we were going back and forth if, you know, maybe I, maybe I should have done something different. Maybe I should have done something extra. Maybe I did something wrong. And I said, maybe not. And the other doctor said, and he, he's telling me this. He's telling me this. And he says all, you know, he's going all through all this, uh, um, you know, back and forth. And then I, um, you know, I was like, oh, okay. He went and he, he says, I'm going to take a few, a bunch of more x-rays and CAT scans. I'm not going to charge you for it. I just want to make sure. And he took a bunch of x-rays and he started showing me. He says, you see, this is what the other doctor says and this is what I say. But Baruch Hashem, he's this is such an Ehrlich doctor. He says, Baruch Hashem, I see that I was right. I don't have to do anything and, and, it, and it was fine. See, when you have a doctor that thinks that he's all that and is all the best and he's like, the top of the line. By the way, this doctor is the top of the line. And he's like, he's like you think he's all the best? He's like, why am I going to consult with another doctor? You have a little bit of arrogance, a little bit of gaiva, a little bit of like, oh no, you know what I mean? This is, you know, I know what I'm talking about. And that could cause a lot of problems. Besides the gaiva, besides the arrogance, it could cause, uh, you know, uh, misdiagnosing. It could cause, uh, you know, medications that are contrary. It could cause so many problems. And it can endanger life. That's why the Gemara goes and says the best, the best of the doctors. Why? Because they're the ones who have to be the most cautious. They're the ones who have the problem of gaiva, of the, of the arrogance. But that, with that mindset, we have to think about it. Okay, so maybe you're not a doctor. But what about anything else in your profession? Maybe somebody comes over to you and be like, did you do the right job? Be like, what are you talking about? I'm very good at what I do. I'm the best at what I do. You get over there, that's arrogance over there. That's also problematic. That's also something that we don't want to get involved in. A big part of it is because of the arrogance. So what happened is, and we're going to finish up because we're getting a little bit late. You have people that go and work and work and work and work and they don't stop and they can't stop. It's called terminology that's called workaholics. They can't stop. Uh, if only they would utilize that power to be Talmudicholics. You know, learning Gemara nonstop or learning Musaholics, you know, nonstop learning Chumisha, you know, all nonstop. But they can't and they stop and they can't, they can't continue with their life. They, oh, everything's all about business. Everything's all about work. Rabbi Shmuel Birnbaum, which I happen to have a picture of him right over here, if you could see. This was, oh man, what a tzaddik. This, this, whenever you go to the base matters, he always sat and he was always learning. And oh man, like with piercing blue eyes also. Like if he, I remember one time I was walking down the aisle and he just looked up at me and I like froze. I'm like, oh, Oh, what am I supposed to do now? You know, like, uh, you know, I don't know. Like, I, I didn't even know that. Like, like, there's like holiness radiates. Uh, you know, from from such a holy person. So Rabbi Shmuel Birnbaum, Zechariah of Bracha, went, and he and he goes and he says, you know, every mitzvah has a shear. Every mitzvah has a required amount. How much matzah you need to eat? How big the lulav should be? Everything has a shear. And in every in every measurement, there's a hither mitzvah. There's there's an enhancement option that you could do. If you add, for example, one-third more, as the Gemara Bava Kama goes and tells us, uh, whether it's in size or expenditure, it doesn't matter. You add a little bit more. So the, the bottom line is, if you do add more to the mitzvah, more that you need to, Hashem gives you more reward. But there's one mitzvah that if you do more than the share, than the amount allotted, it's a total waste and has no value. And that says, Rav Shmuel Birnbaum, the area of Ishtadlus. He says, if you completed the bare minimum, you are done. And Rav Shmuel Birnbaum, Goes and he says, you know, you know such, the Masmadadar goes and he says, I'm perplexed by how many questions I get about the matzah, about the lulav, about all the other mitzvot. But the one, the, the, the few shilas that I actually get, the most important ones, were like, they would come to the rabbi and be like, did I do the minimum ishtadlas? Did I, did I accomplish? Maybe I could spend more time learning rabbi. Did I fulfill my requirement of working? He says, I rarely get those questions. I get the other questions. But these type of questions I don't get. So this is what we should be thinking of. should be thinking about more in the spiritual and less on the physical. I want to finish off with one story. That is, it was a, there was a person 
that approached the Lulavar Rebbe. And he went over to the Rebbe, and he said that he didn't have enough money to provide for his family, so he wanted to move to America in hopes to change uh, his fortune. So the Rebbe responded to him with, uh, um, you know, with a story. He says, once there was a small town where there was a great Talmud Chacham, and he lived in dire poverty. He was a rabbi of the town. And they, the, the town people were very poor. They couldn't afford to pay the rabbi. So they were, this rabbi was sitting there and destitute, didn't have enough money. One day, two very wealthy individuals came before this rabbi for a din Torah. They had a question uh, you know, that, they, that they needed a rabbi to resolve. And they presented both information. The rabbi had to look over the details and needed some time to work on it. So they told him, he says, Rabbi, we can't stay here until you come to your decision. Why don't you come to your decision and then come to us to our town and we'll pay you and they were going to comp- compensate him very handsomely like give him a lot of money to make that trip so he said he goes and he says um, let me think about it Let's, let me go to Mincha and I'll, I'll get back to you afterwards so they go. he goes to Davin Mincha and after he finishes Mincha he goes and he says I'm sorry but I cannot come with you disappointed the guy said okay thank you for your consideration and they got up and they left the Rebbitzin, the wife, is listening to this and she starts beginning to cry. And she's like, what, what are you doing? He says, why are you not going with them? He says, they were offering us money. We don't have any food to put on the table. Why are you not going with them? And even furthermore, she goes and she asks him, she says, why did you wait until after Mincha to tell them that? So the rabbi goes and says, you know, I was thinking about it. He says, when I was davening Shemones, right? I got off up to the bracha of Baruch Aleinu, the blessing for Parnassah, the blessing for, for our sustenance. And I go and I start thinking, like, wait a minute, HaGadosh Baruch Hu provides for everybody. Where does he provide for? From Shemayim, very, very far away, the spiritual heaven, the Kisei covered. who knows how far it is. In thousands of thousands of years, he goes and he brings it to this earth. And he brings it to me, my Parnassah. So it says, just like the Shabbat could give me that Parnassah in that town, he could give me the Parnassah in this town. And if I'm supposed to make the money, I'll make the money, I don't need to go and add any travel. If I travel, I start losing from my learning, I'm not, you know, I don't need to do that. So, the respectful wife said, okay, fine. A short time goes by, a few days go by, and both these guys come back. And he says, Rabbi, you know, we decided that uh, we're going to come back to you. And we decided that, you know, we don't want, you know, we wanted to hear your answer. And they came back, and the rabbi told them the answer. And they thanked him, and they gave the rabbi the exact sum that they were going to give the rabbi if he would have traveled over, you know, you know to, their, to their town. So we see over here that the money came to him wherever he was supposed to be. So this rabbi, which was telling over this person who needed money and wanted to go to America to make some money, he said that you don't have to travel to America. Hashem could send us money wherever you are. Whatever business you are, wherever you are, Hashem could send us money. But along these lines, we have to remember what the Chazonish says, and this, with, with this we'll close. That one should really rely totally on HaKadosh Baruch Hu. But also one has to be extremely honest and not fool himself, thinking that his bitachon is more than what it really is. Hashem provides the needs according to the person's true emuna and bitachon and reliance on Hashem. If a person claims to have bitachon, but this trust in Hashem is really superficial and not genuine, he cannot expect Hashem to provide for his needs directly. So yes, we need to have emuna and we need to have bitachon, and even more so we have to work on that being true emuna and true bitachon. But ultimately, we also have to put into our mindset that no matter where we go, HaKadosh Baruch Hu has the ability to go and provide with us. HaKadosh Baruch Hu has the ability to give us anything and everything that we want to. And I'll tell you, with this in mind, my philosophy always to utilize and capitalize on opportunities, whether it's spiritual or whether it's in, in the physical. The, probably the higher level would be that you don't need to capitalize on the physical opportunities because Hashem will send it. But I'm sharing with you my low level of where I'm holding, and that is the, you know, the level where, where especially in the, in the spiritual side, that is so important. Always capitalize. You have a mitzvah that comes on your way. Don't, don't push it off. You know, you have an ability to do something. And I'll even give you an example. You guys all came to the live, you know, share, which, I, you know, I thank you all for coming. But you didn't need to. You could have listened to it online. And by the way, there's no, there's, there's, you can know for yourself. It's very different when you listen to it live versus when you listen to it recorded. Because you're not paying attention so much. And you know, whatever, you're here, you're over there. There's a different level. You capitalize an opportunity. You capitalize on times where you're able to do it. And it shouldn't be only for this. If you have an opportunity to daven, you have an opportunity to do chesed, you have an opportunity to do something, then you have to go and you have to capitalize on it. You really have to go and capitalize. And if you don't, you're losing on so many, so many opportunities. So you may not go and you may not, you may not agree with capitalizing in the, in the financial world, in the business world, in the physical world. The, but at least, at least capitalized, you could capitalize on the spiritual aspect. 
You can capitalize on the spiritual aspect. And that is whatever comes your way, take it and take it to the bank and do it. If it's a mitzvah or whatever it is, you should go and you should do it. With that being said, you should also keep in mind that at the end of the day, HaKadosh Baruch is the one that provides. He can make you a billionaire from whatever profession you are in, and he can make you a, a you know, not billionaire, let's say that way, from whichever profession you are in. We have to have a munah mitachan, and we have to, as the Gemara goes, and the, and the Gemara says that we do our shtadlis, we do what we need to do, but at the end, the, first, the thing that we need to do is v'yivakesh rachamim lemisha yishva nechasim shalai. At the end of the day, we have to go and we have to pray for mercy from who actually ha- owns everything, and that is HaKadosh Baruch Hu. With that, we will open up to uh, questions. Okay, that's what we have over here. Alright, here we go. Um, first question, I need help. I need to go help my husband with something, but I want to say... Th- oh, okay, never mind. Um... Hold on a second. This is more of a... Okay, let me read this out loud because I'm not getting... I need, to, I need to go help my husband something. I want to say thank you. I couldn't find Rabbi Z email or contact information, but I was personally struggling. I got a bracha from him a week later. I was proposed to that. It was one year and seven months ago. I got the bracha and I don't believe it's... Oh, wow. Okay, thank you very much. Amazing. Okay, next... Uh, oh, there's one line, only one more question. The Gemara says that one is allowed to leave Eretz Yisrael to... F- to get married, to find a better Torah learning, and to make a, to make a parnasa. Since Hashem can send us our money wherever we, you, you are, why does the Gemara allow to leave Eretz Yisrael to make a parnasa? That's a great question. So, I, this, is my, this is my own answer, that again, I would have to look up to see if this would coincide with what the Mepharshim speak about, but I'll tell you my own answer, that it depends on the level that you are in. That if you are on a high level, and you have real emunah bitachan to a high level, then yes, you could stay wherever you are, and the will send it. Assuming that in the normal realm of, of, of things it exists, meaning that there are women there that, or men there that you could go and date, and there's parnasa there that you could do. So in the normal realm, you, you know, you should do that. But in the level where many people are, unfortunately, is not a level where they sit back and they sit and learn all day, and Akadish Baruch is going to send them everything right to their door. Some people are, but most are not in that level. So for that, there are certain criteria that, um, that you are allowed to take, that is the Heshtaglis. Amen on the bracha. Thank you so much on the bracha. All right. Looks like that was all the questions. Thank you all for joining. Until next week. Um, oh, wait. No, another question. You mentioned before that you must do hishtadlut at work. But what about a young person who doesn't really need to make money yet? Is, just, is it a lack of bitachan and too... Is it a lack of bitachan and too much hishtadlut? So that's a good question. So let's say... Um, let's say a person is... You know, doesn't need to work or doesn't need to... Uh, uh, you know, make money or for whatever reason. Uh, the, should they work? So it depends. A person should not stay home doing nothing. That that is very person. You know, we know um, that the, the I believe the pasuk in Yiv it says Adam la amal yulat. A person was created to toil. The the pasuk in Yiv tells us that what we're not supposed to be sitting back and we're supposed to work. And if you're sitting at home and you're not doing anything, then it's better to work. Better to keep yourself busy. But if you have an opportunity, you're doing something else, you're doing chesed, you're doing something else, so then if you don't need to work, then there's no need to, then there's no need to work, then, then fine. But, again, there's a lot of criteria that could come into play. You're about to get married, you want a certain person, you know, so maybe you want to save up a little bit. There's a lot of different criteria, and that is something that has to be spoken about privately on a case-by-case basis. Oh, we have here another question. Should you work more and give tzedakah or work just enough to learn? The best is to work enough and learn. That's the highest level. Not to work to give tzedakah. will take care. The best is to work and, and learn. Okay. That looks like that was the final question. So thank you all for joining. May HaKadosh bless each and every single one of us. That whatever profession you do go and you do decide to do, may you be extremely successful in that profession and should be a profession that you enjoy, a profession that you're happy with, and a profession that you'll make tremendous amount of money and that money will make you closer to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.